What up, though? Welcome to the Fat Boy MMA podcast, where we talk about everything combat sports, but mainly MMA. If you want to hear a couple regular MMA fans talk about MMA history, notable fighters, up and coming fighters, and everything in between, then this is the podcast for you. Now, I should warn you, we're not professionals, but we are big fans of combat sports. If that sits well with you, sit back, grab a beverage, relax, and let's go. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Fat Boy MMA podcast. I am your host, DC. And of course, I got my co-host here with me, Locke. Hey, what's up, y'all? So, today we have another episode of Gloves and Roses. And I was trying to decide who I wanted to do this Gloves and Roses about. And this person kind of popped up in my head. And part of the reason why they pop up into my head is because they are actually going to be a part of a non-MMA event this coming Sunday. Now, when I say this coming Sunday, by the time this comes out, (laughs) this event will already be over, I'm sure. (laughs) It could have been last Sunday. It could have been four Sundays Sundays ago. ago. (laughs) Something like that, but. They one Sunday be, ago. <laughs> one of those Sundays. <laughs> <laughs> but they're going to be competing in, in combat jiu-jitsu. Going over there to compete for that title, which was a shocker to me. But going through everything with this person and going back and watching some of the fights and everything like that, I think this person was on the cusp of being a person that we could have talked about in the Fallen Goat series. But we will be talking about none other than Uriah, the California kid, Faber. So before I get into the normal awards and accolades and everything like that, any words on Uriah Faber lot? Yeah, so I will say this. I got a lot of respect for Uriah Faber and his career. This is going to be one of the first times... I'm not a huge fan. Not not that I, anything against him. Uh, I would say that you've always been more of a fan of Uriah Faber. And uh, probably some of that's what kind of hit me to WEC and some of the smaller guys to begin with. You, you did, as usual, steal my thunder because my line going into this was going to be that at one point this would have been a fallen goat conversation. But then at some point the goat falls so far that you're like, okay, well, you fell right into a gloves and roses then. Yeah, you know, my goal every episode, I ask myself, what would Locke say? And then I steal it. (laughs) Uh, You know, just like I got the big bucks to slide in a bare knuckle, uh, you know, reference every time. Mm -hmm. My my haters, they have a fun together and uh, they pay DC big bucks (laughs) to uh, steal my thunder once per episode. You know, whatever I can do. But to run down some awards and accolades, I actually want to start before I get to the rewards and accolades. I would say Uriah Faber is, he's probably the reason why we know about a lot of the smaller divisions. And it's because, and this is one of those things that people just have to realize whether they like an individual or not, it takes a person with, you know, big star power that puts attention on something. You know, as we know, whether people like the GOAT, Ronda Rousey or not, she's the reason why women were in the UFC. You know, she was good and she was a star. And Uriah Faber represented that for the smaller weight classes when nobody was paying attention 
and this guy would have people traveling from state to state to watch him fight. Um, but now, awards and accolades, he was actually inducted into the UFC Hall of Fame back in 2017 under the UFC banner. And I'm for the accolades, I'm going to separate UFC and WEC. He won fight of the night in, his, in a fight against Dominic Cruz. He won performance of the night against Ricky Simon. He won two submission of the night bonuses, one against Brian Bowles, one against Michael Mc. He tied Ronnie Yaya for the most submissions in Bantamweight history in the UFC. Uh, and then he tied Marlon Vera for second most fights in the Bantamweight division of the W. I'm sorry, of the UFC. WEC, he was the featherweight champion. He, I believe he, by the time it ended, I believe he had the most title defenses um, at featherweight because Aldo wouldn't have had enough time. I think Aldo had three before they came over to the UFC, but he had um, three fight of the night bonuses, knockout of the night, submission of the night four times, and most, yeah, most consecutive title defenses, but also the most successful title defenses. So, you know, whether a person won the belt, lost it, won it back or whatever, just overall title defenses. So that's, you know, that's pretty big. And he also won submission of the year in 2013 for a fight against Ivan Menjivar. Um, And this is a big one back in 2006. And this is one of the reasons why, you know, I said when I really went back and looked at everything, he could have been in the GOAT conversation. I just think uh, the the biggest part of his career was so early. Um, at one point in time, he held and defended the WEC featherweight title, the King of the Cage bantamweight title, and the Gladiator Challenge bantamweight title all at the same time in 2006 uh, before deciding to go and stick with WEC, which eventually, as people know, got bought by the UFC and got rolled over into the UFC. Um, so he's basically like, if any little guy anywhere in multiple divisions, just if you're small, period, and you want to hold any belt, you have to go through me. Yep, pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. Because you, you, you figure, and this is one of the reasons why this was so important. Back then, there you only had these kind of promotions there. You know, as we know, uh, the UFC had even got rid of 155, right? So you really just didn't have the promotions that had these smaller 135, 145 guys. There were very few. And at the time, I would say the WEC was definitely the premier league for it. So, yeah, like you said, you know, if you were a smaller guy, you wanted one of these belts, you had to go through, <laughs> you had to go through Uriah. So that said... I ran down a lot of what was there. A few things I took out, just in general, he's done a lot, including, you know, not only did he break down the door for the smaller guys, he created probably the biggest, most decorated camp outside of Novo Uniao for smaller guys that, you know, name a, name a promotion. If they're 155 pounds or smaller, Team Alpha Male was the place to go, and he founded it, right? If you're in Brazil, you're going to go over to Novo Uniao. But if you're in America or anywhere else, you're probably trying to make your way down to Team Alpha Male. So not only did he pave the way by fighting, he paved the way by creating 
the camp, the team, and bringing in those smaller guys to help that, you know, steel sharpens steel, iron sharpens iron type of deal. So with that, I'm going to kick it over to you. Anything else you want to throw in there? Um, I guess one, one of the things I want to say is I like to give BJ Patton most of the credit for, you know, for everything, small, for, well, for, 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 for everything, everything in general, for everything. But, yeah. you know, it's like, you know, being the, the pioneer of the small guys, which he is a pioneer, obviously. But I think obviously he has to get some of the credit towards the, the lighter weights being what they are now. But I still think Uriah Faber is just over BJ Penn in not in career accomplishments or whatever, but in actually impact on the lighter weights becoming getting more eyes on him and making it to USC level. Because I think he just had that that extra extra charisma, uh, the personality, you know, California love. I have my brother in law who knows he doesn't know anything about MMA. He's watched one event, one pay per view at my house one time. We went to a live event to watch Nick Newell fight in Nashville. And uh my guy. It, and outside of that, he has zero MMA knowledge except that Uriah Faber is his favorite fighter. He loves the California kid. <laughs> that's, that's hilarious. That's huge though, right? When mm-hmm. you have people that aren't even into the sport being a fan of yours, that really, you know, catapult your po- popularity. So he's definitely I say it's him and BJ Penn are right there. BJ Penn's got the more accomplished career. But uh-huh. Uriah Faber really had the, you know, the personality, the charisma, and really brought that division to the forefront. Which, to say what you want, <clears throat> your your Dominic Cruz's, your Jose Aldo's, all these guys, they owe, you know, the fact that we're talking about them in the GOAT status, the fact that they've made these, you know, giant careers, a lot of that they owe to their greatest rival. Because without Uriah Faber, they don't get that opportunity. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, I would put BJP and him in a different category. And this is the only reason why I say that. I think 155 was an accepted division everywhere. It was considered small only because most places that was as small as you got. Whereas I think what Uriah ushered in was everything below that, right? The small, small guys. And once again, because it wasn't just him, but his camp, right? So, you know, if he's fighting at 45, he got guys at 35. Nobody, nobody was watching guys at 45 and 35. You know, it just pretty much didn't exist, right? Um, And I'm talking about even when you look at pride and everything like that, it pretty much was 155 and up, you know? So that, when I think of BJ Pitt as the small guy, I think of him as the small guy in the big division. I think of Uriah Faber as these are the small guys that nobody even recognizes exists, and that's the difference, you know? BJ Penn's the smallest of the big guys. Uriah Faber's yeah. the biggest of the small guys. Exactly, exactly, exactly. But, no, all good points. Um, i tell you one thing, though. Um, he, like, fought everybody. And um, I went back and watched a lot of the fights. And um, it's funny because a lot of my favorite fights were fights that he lost, but, you know, just showed tremendous heart and everything like that. But one of the things that I noticed is pretty much by the time he hit the WEC, 
he fought nothing but big names. And what I mean by that is either they were already a big name or on their way to be a big name. And when I looked at his whole career, he pretty much outside of Tyson Griffin and uh, which was very, very early on. And Tyson Griffin had pretty much started, you know, just started out his career. And Jimmy Rivera, outside of those two individuals in his whole career, he only lost to people that held, held belts. That's a crazy stat. Like, you know, we're talking about he had, what was his record? And I actually, I should have said that up front. My apologies, but... His record was 35 and 11, right? So out of those 46 fights, pretty much, um, you know, take away maybe his first six or so fights, but he only fought big names. Unfortunately, those same people that held the titles were the people that he often lost against multiple times. And when you look at his 11 losses, a lot of them are against the same individuals over and over again. Mike Thomas Brown multiple times, uh, Dominic Cruz multiple times, right? Um, you know, just a lot of that. But when you look at it, it's, it's I mean, go down the line. I, you know, a lot of times I'll put, I didn't put them all in here because it's just so many. So I didn't write it down, but names that he fought. Now, a lot of these may not be big names that people recognize today, but especially for the smaller guys and coming through that ranks of WEC onto the UFC, Tyson Griffin, Ivan Menjavar, Charles Crazy Horse Bennett, Bibiano Fernandez, who went on to be, you know, probably the, the greatest one champion ever, right? Dominic Cruz, Jeff Curran, Jens Pover, Mike Brown, Mike Thomas Brown, for people that don't know him, don't confuse him with Mike Brown that fights at 170. Mike Thomas Brown probably stopped fighting if you're newer to MMA, probably stopped fighting before you started watching MMA, but he's one of the top coaches over at American Top Team, right? Um, Hafiala Sunsau, Jose Aldo, uh, Misugaki, Eddie Wineland, Brian Bowles, Hennen Barrow. Scott Jorgensen, Yuri Alcantara, Alex Caceres, uh, Frankie Edgar, uh, uh, Jimmy Rivera, Brad Pickett, Peter Yan. Like, you look at the that list, I mean, pretty much as you go down the list, he was either losing a title fight and then fighting and getting right back to it and then losing the title fight, right? Or in his early days, he was racking up a lot of titles. So your thoughts. Well, and where Jimmy Rivera, that, that one's a little bit different, but where you say all the losses are against people that hold a title. Uh-huh. I know he didn't hold a title, but Tyson Griffin has one of those losses. Uh, young Tyson Griffin was a real problem uh-huh. uh, in the lightweights at the time. So that's still another prestigious name. Like, he he didn't lose to... Anybody who's not, he, he he doesn't have an easy out in his loss column. I mean, they're all yep. impressive fighters. Totally agree. Totally agree. And, um, you know, it's um, the way everything shook out. Um, 
it's interesting because, and you know, this is one of those questions I always throw out there and I'll answer it first and then I'll throw it over to you. Um, I don't know that he could have chosen a different path for his career, right? He started off at featherweight and that's where he won the title in the WEC and lost the title, had his title defenses, but he's always fought at both um, featherweight and bantamweight. So he ended up moving down to bantamweight after not being able to get his title back and losing to Aldo and pretty much spent his career at bantamweight, which I think was the right weight class for him in the WEC. Um, do you think it's anything that he should have done different in his, uh, you know, his career? No, I agree with you. I don't think, I think just the career, career trajectory is just what it is. And he ran into a lot of buzz sauce. Like, like you mentioned, Mike Brown. Yeah, he was a good fighter. He was a title holder. Could be one of the greatest MMA minds of all time. You know, I mean, it's early to say that, but he's definitely one of the top coaches that are out there. And the thing with coaching is he can do that for another 30 years to, to grow right. that skill set. You know, Jose Aldo uh, in the in the go, you know, not conversation, but possibly top 10. You know, so I don't think it's a matter of, you know, when he lost that title and he went up to the UFC, he went down to bantamweight, you know. So I think he all the, made, made all the right career moves. Uh, sometimes you're the hammer and sometimes you're the nail. And uh, it, it is what it is. Um, and, and he was he was on the bad side of a lot of losses where he looked really well and was scrappy as shit and, you know, a bounce this way, an inch that way, and uh, it's a little different. Yeah, I don't think he could have done anything different. I think the cards, the chips fell where they did. Yeah, I totally agree. And, um, yeah, you know, I think he was going through a period of time where really just that whole, all those smaller guys were just getting so good so quick. And, you know, one of his biggest things was his speed and his wrestling. And I think once he came across um, – once he came across that Dominic Cruz footwork, which, you know, we, he won the first Dominic Cruz fight, real young Dominic Cruz um, at featherweight. Um, and But, you know, once Dominic went out down the bantamweight and kind of became the king down there, that Dominic footwork just didn't allow him to really get his wrestling off. And then, of course, the kicks and whatnot of Aldo became a big problem. But I think he relied heavily on his speed. And um, I think I think his skill set, although I think it grew, I didn't don't think it grew as fast for what he needed to do to beat those top tier guys, but I think it was still good enough to beat everybody else. And unfortunately that became a theme in his camp. You know, it wasn't until TJ Dillashaw kind of broke that. You know, yeah. they were always the bridesmaids. <laughs> they were always the, the bridesmaids. <laughs> they were always the bridesmaids, right? They would beat everybody else and get to these title fights and just couldn't win the title for some reason. And it was a hump that they couldn't get over until TJ Dillashaw. Um, I, I but, feel like his skill set grew. It uh -huh. just didn't necessarily evolve. And 
once you had seen him, you know, you could come up with, uh, he was a guy where it's easy to put together a recipe or a game plan to, uh-huh. to beat him. Now, you got to be a bad motherfucker because mm-hmm. he goes down scrapping. But if you bring yeah. that to the table, you could come up with a game plan. You just had to had the cojones to pull it off. Yeah. So I came across something in our last episode. I gave you all the credit for something called the all-violence team. But while doing this research, I see that Sure Dog had and put Uriah in the 2011 and 2013 all-violence first team. So now I have to retract my my gift to you. Well, and <laughs> and there goes the shirts. <laughs> we have to come up with a new name. <laughs> Fucking shirt dog. <laughs> but, uh, but what's funny is I, I think your depiction is better. I don't see him being a part of the all-violence team. But go well, ahead. That's just what I was going to say because I really try to avoid. Last thing I want to do is shit on somebody in their guns in their guns and roses. And their gloves and roses. Uh, uh, I said it again, but yeah, I what I like of him as a fi- as a fighter. I do not think he's anywhere near the uh, all violence. All violence. Team. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Now, all cardio, all pressure, all yeah. uh, you know, all pace. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think early on he was pretty violent. I think just going back to what we talked about, I, I just don't think that. Um, I think as the guys got a little bit bigger, a little bit faster, everything like that, I just think it was harder for him to do that because most of his pure violence came, you know, he was more like one of those, you know, Tito Ortiz type, you know, he gets you on the ground and throw heavy elbows and everything like that and try and cut you open. He won a lot of his early fights that were TKOs. They were not TKOs in, in that sense. They were... He's going to put you on the ground and elbow the shit out of you and cut you, right? And then the doctor's going to stop the fight uh, or, you know, team or whatever, you know. Um, but he won quite a matter of fact, his fight with uh, Bibiano Fernandez, that's what happened. He split him open really bad, um, and that's how he won that fight. So, uh, But I think, you know, that was earlier in his career. By the time he got into... You know the the biggest bulk of his career. A lot of that you just didn't have, right? He he wasn't able to get those positions, and he wasn't a guy that was just going to go out there, um, and throw caution to the wind and just bang it out and take shots. And so you is that makes it hard for me to put you on the all violence team. Either you really just are just knocking people heads off or doing devastating things, or you're the guy that's willing to just go out there on their shield and take one to give one. You know, when you're crafty, a crafty striker, it's hard to put you on all violence team, you know? De- definitely. But now the question is, what's your favorite Uriah fight? So that's a tough one because what I'm not going to do is uh, I'm not going to pick a loss. But he's had some great fights. If it's your favorite fight, he, it's your favorite fight. Lost. Um, I'm 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 gonna go with I'm gonna go with the Ricky Simon fight because I like 
that was his real life in cage gloves and roses moment you know kind of the cat he never got that ufc belt or whatever but he was definitely at a phase where um he had hit some struggles in the career and when you are uriah faber you're always one fight away from a title shot you know and uh that fight really he looked good um probably should have left the gloves in the cage that day um i decided not to and i'd say that was a bad call but i would say that probably be my favorite i don't know if it's my favorite fight i would say that's my favorite uriah favor moment yeah i like that um so this one was hard for me to pick um there was four fights i was choosing between um the cole escovito fight which was the initial fight of him winning the WEC. Um, the Rafael Sanso fight. Um, those were both wins. And then two of the fights were losses. Mike Brown's second fight and um, the fight against Aldo. And the Mike Brown fight and Aldo fight was more showing how much heart he had in both of those, I mean, he the, was severely... The second Mike Brown fight, is that the one where he, like, broke both his hands or something? Yep. Yeah, it was throwing elbows and stuff like that. Yeah, it's tremendous amount of heart. And then, of course, in the Aldo fight, we know he got his leg kicked, like, you know, out of the arena. And somehow he was able to manage to make it to the end of that fight. I'm going to guess he didn't walk for at least two weeks after that, right? But I, I would say the... if, no, if nobody's ever seen it, if you don't know... Just go ahead and Google the Uriah Favor, Jose Aldo leg kicks. Yep. Yeah. And, uh, absolutely. As a trainer. And out of that, what I ended up choosing was the Rafael Asancio fight. And the reason why I chose that one, um, so this particular fight was, you know, one of the last fights um, by this time the UFC had bought um, WEC. It was still a WEC fight, but... He had lost his title to Mike Brown. He beat Jens Pover, came back to fight Mike Brown again, and still couldn't get his title back. And this is where he decided to make the move, um, you know, to, to, to... No, I'm sorry, he didn't move on this one. He, um, he ended up fighting a Sunset, and Mike Brown, by this time, had lost his belt to Aldo. And so he basically jumped right back in it. And if he had won this fight and looked good, he was going to get that next title shot against Aldo. And, um, you know, he dived in and a sun style, I think was like, um, I think he was on like a six or seven fight win streak or something like that was looking really, really good. A nice, strong guy. Um, um, not big for the weight class, definitely not tall. They're about the same height, but, you know, just one of those really thick, thick neck dudes, a tough dude, and um, he really he, went he's out there. He's a Brazilian there. dude. He looked like a. He definitely looks like a wrestler. Like in yeah, America, absolutely. We yep. would just assume he was from Iowa and probably wrestled. <laughs> absolutely. And Uriah went out there and looked really good. Ended up getting the um, third round finish, and that led to um, you know his his next title fight against uh, Jose Aldo. Um, and I really just thought it was a, a big win, a get a big spring back, especially 
coming off of not back-to-back losses, but two losses in title fights in the last three fights, and uh, being able to spring back and jump right back into it. So, um, and I just think he looked really good in that fight. He didn't look like um, he didn't look like he had lost a step, you know. So that that was my favorite Uriah fight. Um. So, I mentioned earlier that he's going to be fighting in the combat jujitsu worlds on Sunday, which I do plan on watching because it's on Fight Pass. Um, and I, I will not be watching. <laughs> I want to know your Fight thoughts Pass. about that. And he's been doing a lot of stuff. I don't know about this, one, but he's been doing a lot of stuff that I always say I would love to see the retired guys do. He's been popping up in all type of jujitsu matches. He had a jujitsu match against Nicky Ryan. Like he's been popping up just everywhere, doing a lot of stuff outside of MMA. And you can tell he still loves the sport. I want to get your opinion on this. Yeah, I like it. Who who is he grappling? Do you know? Uh so I know who it is, but I don't know the guy. His name is Elias Anderson. I'm not familiar with him. I tried to look up. I look up, looked up his sure dog. If it's the right person, it looked like he tried to get into MMA, but he was 0-2 in MMA. But he has the belt over at um, Combat Jiu-Jitsu. So I really don't know a lot about his history or anything like that. Uh, I'll probably watch a couple things before this fight just to get familiar with him. But I really don't know him. Gotcha. Um, but no, I like it. And I actually like this question because it gives me a chance to kind of actually retract something I said earlier in the episode. And then I was listening to you and I kind of thought, you know what? I think I fucked up when I said that. So when I said, um, you know, his skills, like his skills increase, but they didn't evolve. Uh-huh. And uh, maybe they didn't evolve enough or to a, a point. But as a grappler, you're right. Early in his career, he was a very... Tito Ortiz-style grappler. You know, he's a D1 wrestler. He was, you know, power double, short stocky Davis? guy. W- what's that? <laughs> UC Davis, that's where he went. Yeah, yep. <laughs> and fucking, uh, you know, worked the elbows and stuff like that. And over the course of his career, he definitely has turned into a very complete grappler. And uh-huh. I-, I didn't think about that, but when, when, when you said that, I thought, you know, yeah, early on, he was just doing a lot of ground to pound where now he, if he gets you down, he will get to your back and he will choke you out. And Resist. so I think he's definitely evolved as a grappler. And, and I think what I think is cool about this is a lot of guys that go through as many wars as Uriah Faber has, I worry more about um, them fighting MMA for brain damage. And I don't uh-huh. want to see Uriah Faber fight MMA, but it's not because he's punchy or anything. I actually think he seems uh-huh. to be, you know, carrying himself pretty well for a yeah. guy that, you know, has been through the wars that he has. So I'm not interested in watching him fight MMA again, but not for any reason like that. But I think I, I like this. And I think, especially as a guy that's still active in the game as a coach, uh-huh. You know, it's important to find some ways to compete, to keep uh, that game go, you know, keep your your knowledge base up and keep evolving because you you don't want to just teach them what you used to do or what you had success with. You have to uh-huh. keep growing. You know, that's part of martial arts. And, and I think 
I think it really kind of shows how a lot of wrestlers are actually martial artists that uh-huh. never found a dojo. You know, they were just maybe yeah. more inclined towards lifting weights or school sports and ended up in wrestling. But if you if you really know wrestlers, you know, that's it's a bit of a religion to them. They take it very serious. They take they respect it a lot like uh, martial artists do, you know. And uh, I think him doing stuff like this kind of shows that he really had he is a martial artist. He's t- he's taking a martial arts approach to the, to this whole game. Yeah, not to mention, I think, especially as you get younger and younger guys and you get older and older, um, I think it helps you maintain your guys' respect. You can be a great coach of anything and never have done the sport. People that think you can't, I disagree. But when it comes to really winning your guys over, and then really riding with you, a lot of times that comes from them knowing that you understand. You've done it, and you continue to put yourself through certain things so they see, okay, he still has it too. He's not just asking me to go out here and do this. And I think that's one of the reasons why you have master's division, senior division, all of that grappling matches and everything, because, hey, just because I'm 50, and Uriah's not 50, by the way. Although, I am shocked. I did not know Uriah was uh, was older than me. He looks, and, and I, this is a, a problem with those kid. smaller guys. Good, but yeah, he's, he's getting he up does, there. Yeah, yeah but, um, but, you know, this is a reason why you have, you know, 50, 60-year-olds that, you know, keep themselves in good shape and still want to compete, and they have schools and everything like that. Why not allow them, you know, to go out and compete against other older instructors and everything like that? And you get to see them do stuff. And, you know, I'm a firm believer um, in both individuals teaching and learning. So part of when you're teaching somebody, part of them getting it is being able to also teach it. So, for example, when you would see Uriah in fights, a lot of the guys that he was bringing up and coaching were the guys that were coaching and cornering him during his fights, you know. I think uh, TJ cornered him during those Hen and Burrell fights, right? So, you know, I think a lot of that stuff means something. When you see your your coach, your leader, also fighting and working towards something, you know, it, it gives an extra boost in my opinion. Yeah, definitely. I agree. So... You know one of the big questions that always comes up. He's already retired. It's done, right? He's actually retired twice because I think he originally retired in like 2016, 2017 or something. Then he came back for a couple more fights and then he retired again. Um, But if you could have chosen his farewell match, because it shouldn't have been no damn Peter Yan, right? If you could have chosen... His farewell match, who would it have been? Who would you have liked to see him match up against in the UFC? Uh, I don't I don't know, because I'm trying to think of people that I really would have liked to have seen him fight. That's, that's kind of tough, because I can't think of a lot of the little guys that were active, because I feel like he probably should have retired earlier than he did. 
Um, you want me to take this one first? Yeah. No, because I'm still kicking it around. <laughs> um, yeah, go ahead. No, because I don't want you to take my person that I haven't thought right. of yet. Because I'm kind of working on something. I was trying to just talk it out, but now you kind of fucked up that too. So, so just go ahead. You know, I, I'll restart over here. Okay, so nobody else probably would think of this except for me, but I think they should have put him up a third time against Henan Barrow. This is the reason why I say that. He lost to Henan Barrow twice, convincingly. One was a KOTK or something, but at the time in which he retired, 2019, Henan Barrow had went on like a six-fight losing streak. And whatever sauce he had, he didn't have it anymore. When, when he lost that T.J. Dillashaw fight, T.J. Dillashaw completely ripped something out of him that he never got back. And I think at that point in time, that could have been one of those fights that could have ended up being a really spectacular fight. And I don't think, other than the nature of it's a fight, I don't think you're putting either guy in big harm's way because Uriah is still kind of who Uriah is. He just can't beat those top guys. But although Henan Burrell has two big wins over him, Henan Burrell is not the same Henan Burrell. And I think it would be good to for Uriah to try and get one of those losses back. Thoughts? No, I like the idea of making... Barrow, I think Barrow should have to fight Faber on USADA rules. I think that's only fair. Like, uh, no, no, no. We're fighting in Mexico. Um, <laughs> we're fighting in Brazil. No USADA in a a, a back soccer stadium. <laughs> in a soccer stadium. <laughs> um, yeah, I I could see that. Um, that's definitely. Not a bad one. Um, I got two though, and I said I don't. I have no interest in seeing him in an MMA fight, but I have two that I think I would kind of like to see right yes. now. Yes. Not MMA fights though, but two. I got two okay. matchups for Uriah Faber. So. Okay. So I'd like to see uh, a, a grappling tournament, you know, and uh, I think it you could sell it all kinds of ways because you could do. East Coast versus West Coast, you old school versus new school. Um, but I would like to see a grappling match p- between uh, Uriah Faber and uh, Aljamain Sterling. Um, I, I like that. I know. Um, I like that. Actually, what's funny is I think Aljamain, because most of the, the Team Alpha Male guys are gone, I think he should... I don't think he should switch camps, but I think he would get a lot of good work going to do some training with those guys. But no, I like that one. I like that. Well, one. I like how they're both, they both come from the wrestling base where they built the jujitsu afterwards. And it's a real, they both trained it as basically, you know, combat jujitsu for MMA. So I think you take that wrestling base, then you add the jujitsu, but then you take away the strikes neither of them have actually really never trained jiu-jitsu like that. Normally you train jiu-jitsu and add strikes. They've only ever known it that way. And right. uh, like I said, you got New York versus California. Um, 
I mean, I think I think it'd be an interesting grappler match. And the other one, I know the guy would be down. But okay. the rematch, Uriah Faber versus Crazy Horse, bare knuckle boxing. <laughs> no, listen, there's no bare knuckle, period. No. Yep. Crazy no. horse, like <laughs> no. He's he's ready for no. a bare knuckle. How has he not fought bare knuckle? Has he? Ah, uh, he's probably still out there getting in trouble, man. He's one of those guys that um, I like Crazy Horse, but he's one of those guys that um, needed a little bit better guidance earlier in his career. But um, I think he was still fighting up until a couple years ago. You know, they might have retired around the same time. I think he had a fight like in. 2019, 2020 or something. I think I remember popping Crazy up. Crazy Horse like, really? lost to Rob Emerson last year. Yeah, well, there you go. I well, was I so, was further away. I said 2020. <laughs> did I was not surprised that Crazy Horse yeah. was still fighting. Yeah, Rob Emerson is still fighting? Yeah, I didn't know Emerson was still fighting yeah. either. Yeah. Emerson's fighting in Biloxi, Mississippi. Yeah. And see, those are guys that, um, in my opinion... We talk about a lot of the greats that, you know, should retire and go into something alternative. A lot of those guys like that, they definitely should be over there. Like, you know, Emerson was one of those guys, I consider him a B-minus fighter. <laughs> he was never going to be champion but also, I don't think he was going to be the Uriah favor. He wasn't going to be the guy that beats everybody but the champion. But he was really good, in my opinion. Right? Um, but, you know, you really, like, you can't be getting paid that much at that level and still out there fighting. Is it worth it? And I really believe that, especially once again, with the rise of BJJ the way that it is, there's a lot of money in it now. You know, why keep why keep going that route when you can go out here and just train and, you know, and the training is way cheaper, right? So, okay, for an MMA camp, you know, it might cost you over $1,000 easy for an MMA camp. You know how much it costs for a damn Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu camp? $150 a month. You go and you train with everybody, <laughs> yeah. right? You know, right, you join the damn gym. <laughs> right? So you save you money. You look at the local uh, community college or D3 college or whatever. Somebody's got a wrestling room. You exactly. know, so you can go get, get in there. Listen, they need bodies. Hey, you know, I just want to come and get some work in with your guys. Oh, absolutely. Come yeah. on in. Come on in. <laughs> right? So, um, you know, I think of those guys as uh, as people that, would fit this narrative a lot. Um, and I think the more and more people that get over into it, the more it blows up. I mean, it's already going crazy. I think a couple episodes ago, I was telling you, um, I was watching something and it was talking about how how crazy, um, I think it was ADCC they were talking about, um, that they were talking about the numbers of how much it grew in between just from uh, 2012 to now. It was like something like 2012, there was like, I forget what they said, so I'm going to butcher the numbers, but it's on one of these episodes. But they said it was something like 3,000 people total 
And then it was like they went back a few years. I forget where it was at. And it was like, oh, it was like, you know, 10,000 fans or something. And then I think they said this last time it was like 30,000 fans. That's like, that's a basketball stadium, right? It's not football numbers, but it's de- it's definitely a damn basketball stadium. Yeah. For a jujitsu, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Well, look, and it all starts somewhere, you know, mm-hmm. that gets people, you know, turned on to it. They'll check out the next one and then you just keep yep. it growing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, the last thing that I got for you, hey, the very quick, last thing. Before you say oh, that, uh, so... Crazy Horse Bennett has fought Bare Knuckle, and this is why oh, he, he can't did. fight Bare Knuckle, okay. because he's 0-3. He fought once okay. in 2018, 2019, <laughs> and 2020. He's 0-3. So he was on Bare Knuckle before you. Right. <laughs> and, even, and that's only he that they have track this shit. He, he had three Bare Knuckle fights in the parking lot um, that right. I counted. Right. Um, but two of his three losses were, were to hand injuries. So I can believe that if anybody's ever seen that. Crazy Horse Bennett fight, yeah, it would make perfect sense that he would break his hand in a bare knuckle fight. Yeah, I can believe that. Okay, so last question, and this is a bit of a um, a twist. So dun, dun, in dun. his prime, uh-huh. do you think that Uriah Faber could compete in today's? Featherweight or bantamweight division. Now this is the twist. I'm going to give you my answer first because it goes. It doesn't go directly with the question. Okay, so it's an odd way my to answer, ask and answer questions. <laughs> my answer is, I don't think in his prime he would beat today's 135 or 145 fighters, but I do think. That if he dropped down to 125, which I think he could make, I think he could become champion at 125 in today's 125 division with his, even just his prime skill level. I think he could be 125 champion today. But the actual question is, in in his prime, do you think he could compete in today's featherweight or bantamweight divisions? Nah, because I'm looking at both the the rankings of both right now. And for one, at featherweight, you got Max and um, Volk up there. And, you know, they're in the GOAT conversation yep. of all, uh-huh. all weight classes almost. You know what I mean? They're, they're yep. legit powerhouses. Um, they've proved it against Aldo. They've proved it against, you know. Um, So definitely not at 145. And then, yeah, when you get to Bantamweight, you got a bunch of matchup issues. Uh, you know, Sean Malley, I, I think that's a matchup issue. And it's weird because I don't even like Sean Malley that high in the rankings, but I think he's a matchup issue for um for Faber. I think Corey yeah. Sanhagen. Uh you know, Cheeto Vera honestly, Cheeto Vera in his against Uriah Faber in his prime, I would really like to see. I think that'd be a pretty fun fight to see. Yeah, I think that would be a fun fight. Yeah, I don't want to watch I don't want to watch Uriah Faber fight Cheetah Vera today. Right. But of course. Him in his prime, <laughs> I think that'd be a fun fight. Yeah. But yeah, I just don't think uh I don't think he has a real shot. I don't know that if it's the division 
it got deeper. And I think it's probably, it, it probably is. It's probably a credit to him. You know, he opened up this door for these people to have these other alternatives. And there is a lot of talent out there at these lighter weights, because if you have this strong athletic skill set and you're six to 200 pounds, well, you know what I mean? You could go play, you could play running back. You could play shooting guard. You could play left wing. You could play, and you know what I mean? The world is your freaking oyster and shit. You have that exact same skill set, but you're five, seven, one thirty. All of a sudden everybody's like, eh. So you have all these highly skilled, you know, martial artists and wrestlers that just had nowhere to go. And the second he kind of opened this floodgate with fucking California love and his fucking handsome fucking Tom Brady chin, you know what I mean? He, uh, <laughs> he let in his own doom, you know? So I yeah. think he can't, but I think it's a credit to him because once you made it popular, it, it's the same thing though. The older generation did to, uh, MMA in general, making it a real opportunity for the, you know, so that these guys have somewhere to go pursue a career. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And what you said about the smaller guys is such a good point. Um, and, you know, he's not even the smaller, the smaller guys, right? You look at a guy like DJ, what the hell, if DJ wanted to play a sport and MMA 125, 135 doesn't exist, other than being a damn jockey, like what is he going to do at 5'3"? Well, and for the record, he's probably really good. He's probably I'm sure really he good at most sports. I'm sure he is. Look, Melvin Gillard, he was like an all-state linebacker or some shit. I'm sure. The, the problem is when you get to the next level, yes. you're now 170 what happens, pounds. Well, this is the thing. What happens when somebody has your skill level, but they're twice your size? Right. And that's the problem. It's, it's the reason why in the NBA, you know, you've had what? You had Muggsy Bowles. You had Spud Webb, you had um, Oil Earl Boinkins. There was one more dude like under the height of five. I think all of them were like five seven or under or something like that, right? You got a couple of dudes that came in at like five nine, Nate Robinson, everything like that. But we're talking about the history of modern day NBA, like thirty teams, twelve yeah. people per team. For years and decades and decades. Exactly. And that's what what sifts through. And those guys are good, but you see a difference and they become a liability, especially on the defensive end. You can go out there and get buckets, but okay, you're uh, you're a 5'6 point guard. How do you guard the the 6'5 point guard? How do you guard the six three point guard? That becomes a really big problem, you know, and you become more of a liability. So, um, yeah, I, well, I, I totally think it's agree a big, with like you. I said, like M- Melvin Gillard playing a uh, linebacker. You see that a lot at the high school level. These guys that yeah. can play and are mean and athletic, mm-hmm. they're dope ass linebackers. You know what I yeah. mean? Because they're hard to block and shit. Yeah. But yeah, you just can't. Yeah, you, you're it's just, funny. Um, you're a liability. I think I told you our nose tackle, um, when I played football at high school, our nose tackle was probably, he could have been on more than maybe five, six at the most. And he was like a, um, he wasn't a big dude, but he was like really, really muscular. He was looked like he was on some type of uh, steroids or something. That's how the guy looked like, just 
muscle for no reason and a real big head and he was our our nose guard part of that was um was it wasn't his size as much as it was his speed and everything like that and that's great because most of your centers in high school just aren't especially in you know where I played the PSL it they're not going to be that good you can get them with speed right they're just usually one of the biggest dudes on the team Okay, you take that same skill set, and I think he went like all state or something, but you take that same skill set, and now forget about the NFL, just move up to D1 football. Five, six, nose guard. He, once again, he wasn't a big guy. Maybe, let's say on a heavy day, he was maybe 160, right? Yeah. You got, listen, what are you going to do with, you know, with some of these big guys, man? You yeah. know? You think it's Vince, Vince Wolford was six five three seventy <laughs> and be, and bench like six hundred pounds. Yeah, you know, I don't yeah. care how athletic or gifted you are. If you're a little guy, there's nothing you could do with that. Not to mention, you know the rule: if you can't get to the quarterback, put your hands up. Your hands will never reach past his shoulder pads. <laughs> right? Because once you get back high, not... past high school, every quarterback is six two. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I think it. I think all of that makes a difference. But um, that's one of the reasons why, too. You know, Uriah is such a um, a pioneer. Just a lot of the stuff that you mentioned and ushering in everything for the small guys. Um, you know, you don't have a Dominic Cruz. You don't have a Aldo. You don't have a a, a, a DJ. So many of these guys just will never get recognized. If it's not for, you know, the California kid bringing so many eyes and making people pay attention to these small guys, it's like, you know, nobody cares about, you know? So, any last words so on this one? I'm going to do a recap other than that. Nope. Uh, glad we got to cover them. Unfortunately, it wasn't on the Fallen Goat series, but. Yes. You know, that's why you ain't from the stars. You know, yeah. if you if you miss, you know, look, you, you didn't miss the goat, but he landed right on the gloves and roses. I think he was one UFC title away. One, exactly. All he needed was one UFC just one. title. Just, just one. one. And he would have been there. But just to give you all a quick rundown recap, um, you know, one of the biggest things, as I mentioned before, he held, um, and this is before, uh, the smaller weight classes was in a UFC, so he couldn't have had a UFC title, but he held the WEC King of the Cage and Gladiator Challenge uh, titles simultaneously in 2006. Uh, in the UFC, he was inducted into the Hall of Fame 2017. Uh, he has a fight of night bonus, performance of the night, two-time submission of the night. He's tied for most submissions in UFC Bantamweight history. Um, he's tied for second most fights in UFC bantamweight history under the WEC banner. Um, he was the champion at featherweight, five successful title defenses. He won fight the night three times, knockout of the night. He won submission of the night four times. And he has the uh, most consecutive and most overall title defenses in WEC history. Um, so, you know, just a lot of um, a lot of things that he did really good for the sport. 
if you want to see, you know, kind of the the a lot of these smaller guys before the uh, the UFC, especially if you want to see how those divisions evolve, go back and watch a lot of those U, uh, WEC fights. You know, watch his fights, watch Aldo fights, watch you know a lot of the early Dominic Cruz fights and whatnot, and um, you know you'll see some really good. Uh, it, WC in general, they were known just for some exciting fights um, for people that don't know. Uh, if you go way back, if you want to see um, guy, even guys like Anthony Pettis, that's where they got their start. You know, um, if I'm not mistaken, matter of fact, that that sh- original Showtime kick, I think was like the last fight in the WEC, if I'm not mistaken. That is so correct. You want to see some good fights, go back and watch that. But other than that... Um, any last words? No, that's it. All right. Well, thank you, everybody. Thanks for listening. Come again. That wraps up another great Fat Boy MMA podcast. If you have a topic for us, please email us at topic at fatboymma.com or reach out to us on social media by going to links.fatboymma.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>